Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Let's stand together as we prepare to worship the Lord through song. Uh, we have our kids choir going to be helping us uh, lead in worship this morning, and they're going to perform for you in just a little bit. But before they do, I want to encourage us by reading uh, just a section of Psalm 148, the last, uh, or verse 11 through 13 says, Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for the name, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. We get the opportunity to worship the Lord and to lift him high with our voices this morning. And uh, from, from young and old, we all together get to worship the Lord together. So let's lift him high as we sing.
Amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Um, I'd like to uh, introduce to you our University Baptist Children's Choir. Let's want to give them a hand. You guys look so good, and you guys sound amazing. So we're so glad to have you guys here in our service this morning, helping lead us in worship. And uh, we are going to perform one of our songs that we're going to be singing tonight in our kids' musical. It's tonight at 5 p.m. over next door in the chapel. And um, we're going to be singing a piece from that uh, tonight called There's an App for That. Okay? So are you guys ready? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Great job, guys. So make sure you guys come back to get the rest of the show. That's just one little piece. Um, but yeah, we're excited to have that tonight, 5 p.m. again in the chapel. And then we're actually going to have a reception afterwards with some snacks and some drinks as well. So at this time, um, I'm going to ask that we stand and greet one another. And parents of these children, come on and grab them. Um, and if they go to extended session, they will go right now as well. So go ahead and stand and greet one another.
one of them have. All right. Why don't you guys go ahead and make your ways back to your seat. Let me welcome you here this morning. My name is Jeremiah Smith. I'm the pastor here at University Baptist Church, and we're grateful uh, that you all are with us this morning. What a wonderful way to start the service, uh, to be able to see these kids along with the choir and Matt and the band uh, to lead us in worship. We're grateful for their hard work and effort, and hope you all can make a the time to be with them this evening at 5 o'clock in the chapel. Uh, a couple of announcements as we begin. First of all, if you're a guest and you're a visitor, we're grateful that you've chosen this to be a place of worship this morning. We would love to connect with you um, and, and really help just share more about who we are as a church, let you know more about uh, the vision, the hope, and the dreams that we have for this congregation and the future that we want to pursue. And so you can, you can find out more about us uh, if you would just leave some basic information. We have these connection cards in the back of the pew that you could fill out and leave in the offering tray when it comes by a little bit later. Uh, we also have the capability that if you prefer, you can just text the word guest to this number on the screen. It just gives you a few simple prompts to, to leave some basic information so we can follow back up with you and, again, respond to any questions that you may have. And so we want to encourage you to do that if you have the opportunity. Uh, a couple other things that we have going on this week. Uh, we do have a business meeting this Wednesday night, uh, several items that we will need to be discussing and voting on as a church. And so please mark that on your calendar to be here at uh, 6 p.m. in Harris Hall on Wednesday, May 23rd. Uh, and then we also have, as we said uh, a little bit earlier, the, the concert, uh, the children's choir performance tonight. But another special thing that we have on our horizon uh, this morning, or that's another unique factor to our service this morning, is the opportunity to recognize some graduating seniors from high school. Uh, we are on the verge of summer. Isn't that great, right? And you can just taste it. You can feel it in the air. And for some of us, we know that that includes a different milestone that definitely is worth celebrating. And so I'm going to pray for us and pray for our time. And as I do, I'm going to invite Janae to come forward to recognize these seniors today and to celebrate their many achievements. So let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this day. We are grateful for all that you have done and are going to do. We pray that you would allow us to, to continue to celebrate the hope of this gospel in a meaningful way. We're grateful for not only these children that we've seen uh, sing us and, and lead us in worship today, but also these seniors that we know have put in so much effort. We pray that you would continue to bless them in their endeavors, and that in our time together today as we open up your word, that you would continue to just stir us and encourage us to a greater devotion to your truth and to your gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Let me welcome Janae Pilcher to the stage. Good morning. My name is Janae Pilcher. I'm the interim youth minister here at UBC. And it is my pleasure this morning, like Jeremiah said, to recognize uh, some of our graduating seniors that are here with us this morning. So first of all, uh, they're up here, so I'm going to talk to them for a second. Uh, first of all, congratulations, students, on this incredible achievement. Uh, you all are amazing individuals. I'm so glad that I've had the pleasure to get to know you guys uh, over the last several years. And it's just um, awesome to look at you guys and see the opportunity that you have to make a huge impact on the world as you move forward. I know it's an exciting time for each of you. Uh, some of you may be a little nervous or maybe you're just downright scared. Um, uh, that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first and I won't be the last to tell you that it's gonna be all right, everything's gonna work out. 
Um, you may go to college and decide to change your major five times. It's okay. Your parents may not like it, but it's okay. As long as you find something that you really enjoy, your parents are going to be happy with you. Um, you may decide that college isn't for you, and you decide to seek out a job that fulfills you instead, and that's okay too. Um, uh, you'll lose friendships, but you're going to make new ones, and you'll cherish those forever. Um, there'll be hard times, and there's going to be fun times. Um, but no matter what you choose to do, no matter where you choose to go, remember that you're a child of a God, and, and our God loves you deeply. Um, and he wants you to lead you and guide you uh, towards the greatest life possible. So be sensitive to his guidance. Seek out friendships that help you uh, along your faith journey, and be bold for Christ to all those that you encounter. As you go forward, I hope that you carry special scriptures in your heart that um, bring you comfort and strength. And uh, this is one of my personal favorites, and I pray that it brings the same comfort and hope to you that it has to me. So hear these words from Jeremiah 1, 7 and 8. Then the Lord told me, don't say, I am too young. For you will go everywhere that I send you, and you will speak everything that I command you. Don't be afraid of them, because I'm with you, and I will deliver you, declares the Lord. Remember, you are never too young to serve our God. Um, let him use you to be his light in the world. Um, at this time, I would like to recognize each of our graduating seniors. Uh, we will present you each with a gift from our church. Um, each student is going to receive a, a special Bible that I think will help them specifically along their faith journey. So, um, and then uh, after uh, I recognize them, then um, we'll pray. But uh, parents, if you're here for your student, will you please stand whenever they're recognized also? Uh, please hold your applause until all of our students have been recognized. First, we have Alexandra Rianne Baird. Alex is the daughter of Randy and Stephanie Baird, and she's graduating from Burleson High School. She plans to attend Hill College and then transfer to the University of Arkansas to study health science. Jake Zion Pearson. Jake is the son of Dwyla Pearson and Edward Perkins. He's graduating from Southwest High School, and he plans to attend Tarrant County College and then transfer to UT Arlington to study computer science. Tate Daniel Smith. Tate is the son of Jillian and Daniel Smith. He is graduating from Covenant Classical. He plans to attend the University of Oklahoma to study computer science. students, I know there have been a lot of people in your lives that have helped shape you into the person that you are today, and I would like to recognize those people today as well. So if you're a parent, a teacher, a camp leader, a mentor, a youth or children's volunteer, a nursery worker, or have impacted one of these students in some way, would you please stand and be recognized? Thank you all so much for helping these students grow and mature in their faith and in their lives. Students, did you see those standing? Never forget the family and friends that have helped you grow. Each of these people have, have given you a piece of their heart and they wish the very best for you. Now we will always be here for you to come to for encouragement, praise, a wise word, someone to pray with, or even if you just need a hug. We would like to invite all of you here today to join us in Harris Hall after 
uh, worship service for a, a reception to honor these students. Uh, you can sign a card for them and just give them your personal congratulations then. So at this time, I'm going to pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for each of these students, Lord. I thank you for uh, the ways that they've impacted my life, uh, the way that I've seen them grow, Lord. I just pray that you would continue to be with them, Lord. Lead them and guide them and help them to uh, hear your word and hear your voice, Lord, above all others, God. I pray that you would uh, be with them every step of the way, Lord, and help them to know that they are never alone, God. Um, that they are never too young to serve you and that they are never too young uh, to be bold for you, God. I just pray that you would Use them in mighty ways as they move forward, Lord. I just thank you again for each of these students and the ways they have uh, blessed our church, Lord. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship. Let's sing together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like this. your holy name you're rich in love and you're slow to anger your name is great and your heart is kind for all your goodness I will keep on singing ten thousand for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul. I worship Your Time has come 
opportunity to worship your name through song, through remembering all that you've done for us, for encouraging uh, each other, to encourage the person next to us uh, how good you are, and that there are 10,000 reasons to worship you and to devote our lives to you as living sacrifices of worship, not just in song, not just in word, but in deed and in heart and passion. Lord, that we would offer our whole lives to you as living sacrifices, as acts of worship, because you deserve it all all that you've done for us. And God, as we transition to a time of giving, I pray that spirit of worship continues because giving is an act of worship, trusting you, knowing that everything that we have is just a gift from you. It's all yours. We thank you for the opportunity to give this morning as an act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated and we're gonna pass the offering plates, but I encourage you just to go ahead and Sing along, even while you're seated. Uh, just sing with us as we as we sing the song. Christ is sure. Justly 
pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the truths of that song. Father, that Jesus is truly a sure and steady anchor for our souls. And I pray that that would be a reality that we can rest upon this morning. Father, as we think about just the opportunity to come and gather together as as your church, as your children, Father, knowing that there are so many different things in our hearts and our minds as we walk through these doors today. And so many times we walk through them out of habit, out of routine. And sometimes we miss the opportunity just to sit and be still in your presence and be reminded once again of your steadiness, that you're an anchor for our souls. And so, Father, for those of us that walk in here today with with a heaviness or with a burden, Father, we pray that we can entrust it to you. And that once again, you will prove yourself to be faithful. We are grateful for all that you have done and all that you're going to do. And we ask now that you would bless us with your holy and divine presence. In Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. So it was just after midnight. And and the date was April 15th, 1912. And the wireless operator for the uh, passenger vessel, uh, RMS Carpathia, was a 21-year-old man by the name of Harold Cottom. And he had just finished his responsibilities uh, for the day, but decided to review a few more transmissions before uh, retiring for the evening. And so he went through these transmissions and came across one that said, just struck ice, come quick. Well, he knew that this could be a a message of concern, a message of distress, and so he needed to verify the severity and the seriousness of this transmission. And so he responded to the captain of the ship and 
tried to confirm whether or not there was still a threat or a concern, to which the captain replied, yes, this is a CQD, which is, was the code for a distress signal in that point in time. CQ was how you started the transmission. D was for distress. And he said, it's a CQD. Here's our position. Report it and get here as quickly as you can. And so Harold Cottam took this message and he ran to a superior officer and he began to explain the situation, but the, the message was received with a certain level of skepticism. There was an uncertainty as to whether or not the Carpathian ship needed to, to really change its course to go and, and alleviate this distress call. And so seeing the skepticism, Harold Cottam <clears throat> decided to pursue the captain who was already in his cabin for the evening, but he saw that his light was still on, and so he went and he conveyed the message to the captain and convinced him that this was a serious matter, and so they changed course, and they began to move with great urgency to the coordinates that were given to them. The problem was is that they knew they were about four hours away before they could actually arrive. And so as they continued on this course and continued on this journey, they would receive additional transmissions, sinking fast, come quick, the engine room is flooded to its boilers, and then nothing. No more transmissions, no more correspondence, which ignited some of these fears within the crew that they were going to be there too late, right? That there, was, there wasn't going to be a, a hope for them once they arrived. And sure enough, when they arrived at that position in those coordinates, many hours later, all they found was wood and debris, and their fears were confirmed. But as they continued to search the area, they came across 705 survivors, mostly women and children. And they brought them on board and were able to take them back to safety. It was a really tragic story, but a story that also came with a glimmer of hope through this amazing rescue. Now, more often than not, when we reflect upon the events of that date, we don't really talk about Harold Cottam and his efforts and his heroism for this rescue. We just think about the sinking of the Titanic, right? This, this unthinkable moment. How, how could such a great ship uh, be destroyed and sink in such a way. And so it's a story that reminds us that we have this tendency to focus in on tragedy and often miss the beauty of the rescue. And there's, there's an understandability to that because obviously it was a tragic event, right? But we need to, need to not miss the, the story of the rescue, the fact that this message was received and because of Harold Cottam's persistence and his belief, these 705 survivors were rescued, right? If he had neglected it or if they decided not to respond, how much longer could they have endured in those elements? Would there have been as many survivors? And so we need to, to understand the importance of it, but also what, what led to it. Not just that our eyes sometimes gear towards tragedy and we miss the view of the rescue, but, but what made this rescue possible, right? It was this distress call, right? The fact that they called for help. And, and so you go back and you look at this message that was received and, and how it ignited Harold Cottam to action. We see that this has become a standard process for us in our seasons of life that we know there are going to be these moments where there's this distressful situation where we need to be rescued. And so we've standardized a form of communication to let that call be received or to be offered. Now, at this point in time, as I mentioned earlier, it was CQD, right? CQ is the standard approach in Morse code to signify the beginning of a new transmission. D stood for distress. The problem was is that that could sometimes be difficult to interpret and difficult to see. And so ironically, just several years earlier in 1908, they had actually standardized the more common distress signal to be SOS. Right? Now, there have been a lot of rumors in terms of why choose SOS? What was the re reason for it? Some have suggested that it stood for save our ships or save our souls. 
but that wasn't the case. Uh, the reason SOS was chosen was because of its simplicity, right? When you use Morse code, it's a, it's a simple dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. And so it was easy to communicate, it was easy to interpret, and so it became the standard form of a distress signal. But as technology developed and communication methods changed, all of a sudden you had radio frequencies that, that can continue to create limitations to the SOS distress signal. Because now when you started using radio frequencies, SOS could be misunderstood because an S may sound like an F or an X. And so in 1923, this chief radio operator, his name was Frederick Mockford, was given the task of finding a signal that would be a little bit more clear and more concise and easy to understand. Well, now, Frederick Mockford was in charge of the aviation travel in between London and Paris. And so as he tried to find some sort of term that could be used in these distress calls, he looked at the, the region and some of the terminology, and he came across this phrase in French, which was Venez Medaire. That's as good as my French gets, okay? So I apologize to any French speakers out there. Which means, come and help me. But there's a shortened version in French, which was Mayday's, which is where we get the phrase Mayday, Mayday. And so we have these evolutions of these distress signals. We have these moments like the Titanic and others where we see these moments of distress, whether it's in naval or aviation or any other storm, uh, standard form of communication for first responders where people have to clearly cry out for help. And I bring that to our attention, not to highlight the need for clarity or consistency, but to see that when we have these moments of distress, we need to be able to cry out for help. That it's only through the cry for help that we can find the beauty of the rescue that we need. And that's gonna be a key part of what we see in Jonah as we continue our series. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Jonah chapter one, and I'll give you a little bit of a recap in terms of how this takes us into the need to cry for help. Now, when we started this series just a couple of weeks ago, we just went through the first two verses as a bit of an introduction, right? We looked at the word of the Lord has been revealed to Jonah, right? And that we see that this God, this covenantal God, reveals himself through the spoken word, and he has now revealed himself to the person of Jonah, and the word that he spoke to him was what? Go to the important city of Nineveh, right? Inform them that their troubles have not escaped my notice. We see that this word reveals God's desire for this foreign nation to be saved. He has a heart for all peoples, and he wants them to repent. The fact that he's sending a prophet at all shows us a bit of God's mercy. And so Jonah hears this word. In that first week, we talked about the importance of how we hear God's word, how we can understand it clearly. But then last week, we saw Jonah's response. But he ran away from the Lord. Right? And, and we see this complete disobedience to what God had asked him to do. He runs away from the Lord, and we, we see that the way in which he refuses to adhere to this command is by removing himself from God's community, from God's chosen people. Right? He withdrew from that community to guard against having to be held accountable to it. And so then we can deduce that maybe he was running because he was afraid. Maybe there was hatred. Maybe it was just that he wanted somebody else to fulfill it. But we saw that this refrain in verse 3 was what? Out to sea, away from Yahweh. And the question we asked last week is, which direction are you moving in your life? Right? Are you drifting away or are you pressing in to God? When he speaks, how do you respond? Well, seeing that Jonah's response was disobedience, today we're going to read through verses 4 through 6 to see how God then has a response to Jonah's running away from him. And so follow along with me. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship, 
ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Okay, lots for us to unpack in these two or three verses that we want to read through this morning. The first thing I want to draw our attention to is that the Lord sent a great wind. Now, there's this theme to sending that we find throughout the story of Jonah. We already saw that God tried to send Jonah to Nineveh, and now he's sending a wind. And this will not be the last thing that God sends, as we all can anticipate, right? God sends these things, and in that sending, we are revealing or we're seeing another part of God's character that is incredibly important for us to consider as we walk through this narrative, right? Obviously, Yahweh, God, is this compassionate God, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, but he's also sovereign, right? He has this authority to commend and to send. He has this power, and part of what we have to recognize as we begin to look at the consequences of Jonah's actions is that the ability to understand God's sovereignty, right? Now, a lot of times we don't wrestle with sovereignty as long as things are working according to our expectations and our plans, right? As long as life is going in the manner in which we think it should go and unfolding and according to the way that we think it should unfold, then his sovereignty is pretty easy to get along with. But it's when things deviate from our expectations and they change from what we have in our minds that then all of a sudden it's difficult for us to understand and grasp God's methods, God's approach, his sovereignty. And so part of the challenge of today's message is going to be our journey into a greater understanding of the sovereignty of God. Right? God is sovereign. He sends the wind. And this wind has a certain consequence. Right? This is air in motion, which shows us that God is resistant to Jonah's disobedience, okay? There is a resistance at play here, which is a reminder that whenever we disobey God, we're going to meet some form of resistance. Disobedience does not escape God's notice. And so the severity of that resistance is probably going to be tied to the severity of the disobedience, but what we see in this particular passage is that this wind, this resistance, emerges into a great storm. Right? He sends the wind upon the sea, and a violent storm erupts, one that threatens to break the ship. And so part of the challenge of today's message is how do you and I make sense of the storms? And now what we need to remind ourselves of is that as we read through Jonah, we're reading it literally. Right? We believe these things actually happened, and so I believe there is a literal storm that took place on this occasion, but we're going to talk about it very much metaphorically today, right? How do we make sense of the storms in our life? And perhaps the greater question that we're really going to have to wrestle with later is not just how do we make sense of the storms in our life, but how do we then view the God who sends them? And that's a difficult question, but it's one we have to wrestle with as we faithfully treat this text. So God sends these storms, and these these are pretty significant storms, all right? The way that they're described is that they're threatening to break the ship itself. That, that means that this ship is on the verge of destruction. So metaphorically speaking, what I want you to hear is that what we have to talk about today are not the storms that we would equate to having a bad day, right? So this is more than, man, I had a flat tire. This is more than, ah, oh, I lost my credit card, or, man, my favorite team just lost in the Rose Bowl in overtime because the coach refused to let the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback throw a pass, right? It's, 
I'm still dealing with it, okay, y'all? Um, it's, it's more than that, right? This, these are the storms that have us on the point of, of feeling destroyed. And I know there are many of you in here today that are in the midst of it. Or some of you, you've been in it. Some of you, you're going to be in it. How do we make sense of those moments in life that have us on the verge of destruction? And how do we understand the God that allows it to happen? Challenging questions, but ones that we need to faithfully treat this morning. So we do so by looking through the lens of the characters that, that find themselves subjected to, to these storms. We first see the sailors, right? This violent storm erupts, and so what do they do? They're fearful. They're afraid. They are in distress, right? Distress means to have this feeling of anxiety or sorrow or pain, right? They are completely consumed with this fear, which is pretty significant to us because it results in them crying out, right? Calling for help. The implications of that would be that here you have these these sailors who have experience, who have training, who have certain skill sets, but they have encountered a storm that they've said, we can't do anything about this, Right? This is a, a moment in their situation where they say, this is beyond our capabilities. This is beyond our control. We need help. And that's an important thing for us to consider when we begin to think through how we react to these types of storms in our lives. Because a lot of times, you and I will navigate these seasons of life and we'll think, well, I can handle it. And we rely upon our own strength. We rely upon our own abilities, our own our own skill set, and we think, I can just press on and navigate through this, and one of the greatest um, harms that we can create for ourselves when we go through these storms is to fail to ask for help, and just to think, "I, I can handle it on my own. And so we see some wisdom on some level from these sailors by the fact that they've encountered something so severe that despite their experience, they're saying, I can't handle this. I'm crying out for help. Now, what we see in the way in which the sailors cry out is that what they cry out to is probably not what we would offer as a recommendation, right? They cry out to each to their own God, and then they begin throwing this cargo over the ship to make it lighter, and we can learn some things about their responses, right? Uh, first of all, the fact that they're each crying out to their own God reminds ourselves of this polytheistic environment that Jonah has found himself in. Now, this is significant. We talked about this last week. The whole reason he went to Joppa Right, was to find himself around people that didn't believe in God. He wanted to find people that were not worshipers of Yahweh. That's how he felt like he could elude this call. And so here we have this description that confirms that he was successful because all these sailors are crying out to their own gods. Now, a rabbinic thought that develops, it's not in this particular text, but it's a, a rabbinic thought that develops is that the God of the 70 nations of men at that time were all present in this crew. And so one of the stories that we can find as we read through Jonah is not just how God handles disobedience, but that he is greater than all other gods. It kind of takes us back to this discussion of idolatry, right? That all of us are made for worship, and and we will worship something if we don't worship the creator, but all those things will be proven to be worthless. And so all the cries that the sailors offer in this moment pale in comparison to what God can do. Right? Their, their cries to these other gods are cries in vain. Right? So they're crying out for the wrong reasons. They're also d- taking other efforts to try to alleviate the situation. They're taking this cargo, they're throwing it overboard to try to lighten the ship, which suggests they're trying to gain control of how they can navigate the ship in the midst of the storm. 
right? And so they're trying to assume this control, throwing it overboard, and, and thinking that maybe this will help them. Essentially what you see in their cries and in their throwing this cargo is that their responses to this storm are very reactionary, right? And, and their methods are not working, right? They're, they're looking for help, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And, and we do the same thing, don't we? Right, we go through life and, and we cry out to other things that we think can save us. And we try to gain control by eliminating certain factors in our life. So, so a storm comes to us and we cry out to the God of money. Right? And we think, well, maybe I can buy my way out of this. Or maybe I can buy the comfort or the safety or the security I need. Or we'll encounter a storm and we'll cry to the God of, of indulgences. right? And we'll try to satisfy our lust or our cheap highs and these certain cravings that can just kind of numb our thoughts from it. And maybe that will help us escape. Or maybe we try to eliminate things in our life, right? We try to eliminate these external influences that we have. And we say, well, maybe if I can just rid myself of certain relationships, certain situations, certain family, well, then maybe I can regain control and I can be the one that navigates through these things. And none of it works. None of it works, right? It, it leads to this, to this empty results. And so we can identify with these sailors. Part of the problem that they're having in utilizing these wrong uh, approaches and these wrong methods is driven by the fact that they're just reacting to the storm instead of asking the question, why is the storm here? See, a lot of times we just are doing everything that we can do to get out of the storm without stopping and assessing what's caused it, what's driving this. We have to seek to understand its origins if we're really going to be able to know how to respond in these moments of distress, which is kind of a natural question for us to to, to govern or to ask ourselves as we begin to read through this because at this point in time, you have to wonder, where's Jonah? <laughs> as the reader, we know what's caused the storm. It's Jonah. And so here you see these, these sailors doing everything that they can to respond to it. And right around that time that you begin to ask yourself, where's Jonah? That tells us he'd gone below deck and he was asleep, in a deep sleep. That's an interesting term. In fact, it's the same term that is used to describe Adam when God makes Adam sleep in order to create Eve and woman. All right, so my point is it's not like Jonah was just tired, okay? I mean, he was in a complete unconsciousness, right? He was oblivious to what was going on. So here you have this storm unfolding. You have the frenzied response of the sailors crying out and wailing and throwing things overboard and the wind and the waves are crashing against the ship and Jonah is completely unaware. And that's true for some of us sometimes too, isn't it? Sometimes you and I are on a, 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 a course towards complete destruction, right? We're on this, this path towards this unbelievable storm that is going to threaten so much of our existence and our livelihood and we're completely oblivious to it. We don't even see that it's coming. And what we need is somebody to come alongside and wake us up and say, don't you see what's going on around you? Which is what happens to Jonah, right? The captain goes down and he finds him and he wakes him up. He says, how can you be sleeping in this? Get up and call on your God and maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish, right? And this is a, a pretty interesting exchange because when the captain comes to Jonah and he calls for him to wake up, Right? What does he use? He uses the same word. Right? He uses the same call that we see in verse 2, these verbs of get up and call. That's what God said to Jonah in verse 2. Right? He said, rise up and summon. Rise up 
and preach. It's the same verbs. And so it kind of shows us that no matter what Jonah's methods, he can't elude from the response or from the call that God has placed on his life. He needs him to do something. Jonah's approach here has failed. He is being stirred once again to respond in accordance to God's word. So rise up, get up, and go. And in this whole image of Jonah sleeping in the despair of the sailors is a reminder of of a very interesting comparison that we're going to keep going back to through our journey through Jonah. Because the story sounds somewhat familiar, hopefully, right? Matthew 8. Right, this moment where the disciples are in a similar storm and the waves and the winds are, are beating against their boat. And where is Jesus? He's sleeping. And so they run to Jesus and they say, get up. How could you sleep? Don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus gets up and he calms the wind and the waves. And they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? See, what we'll have through the course of Jonah are these these similarities to Jesus, but the consistent theme is that Jesus is one who is far greater than Jonah. Right? Jonah is stirred and awakened by this crew that is worried about their lives, looking for some help and some assistance. But even Jonah is not as great as the one who can calm the wind and the waves. And so we see this despair in the sailors as they come to Jonah. They say, get up and call on your God. And then we get this beautiful insight to the prayer that they want Jonah to pray. Maybe, maybe your God will notice us and we will not perish. Now that word maybe comes with this idea of perhaps receiving some form of favor, right? That there's something positive that will result. That that take notice means to act favorably upon someone, right? And so what they're saying is that maybe there's hope Even in the midst of all of this despair, maybe in the midst of all of these storms, maybe there's hope that we will not be destroyed. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly, but if I were to summarize the concept of the sailor's prayer, it would be this um, essential quality to the Christian faith, which is the call for mercy. Maybe your God will have mercy on us. Mercy is to extend kindness or compassion to an offender, one who will uh, provide relief for any sort of punishment or any sort of retribution that is owed to them. And so here we have Jonah, the offender. We have this storm that has been sent as a result of his disobedience, and we see that the need for this prayer, the need for hope, the only way to call in the midst of this distress is to have a call for mercy. Come, help me. And so that's what has been brought to Jonah's attention. It's a very powerful exchange. Now, what I want us to consider for a moment is the implications of what we've just read. Because it leads us to some challenging questions, right? We, we have to not just consider what, what are the storms that we face, but how do we make sense of a God who sends them? Because make no mistake, I mean, the scriptures are clear, right? God sent this storm. Right, The progression of the verbs in that first verse or verse 4 and the way in which it is hurled down to the sea, thrown down upon the waves. This is not coincidental. God sent this storm. So how do we make sense of that? How are we to understand that? Now again, one of the things that we could do would be to fixate on on the severity of it and and the implications of it or the, the challenges of it. But what I would rather us ask ourselves is, well, why would God send it, right? Does he send it out of love or does he send it out of anger? 
Right? How are we able to understand this? What we need to see is that whenever there's a measure of disobedience, like what we've read in Jonah's life, you and I can expect that disobedience is going to elicit some sort of response that's going to remind somebody of the proper authority and perspective, right? Like, like think of a parental and child type relationship, right? When, <clears throat> when there is a blatant form of disobedience, and this, this is beyond just, you know, being thoughtless or, or forgetting something. This is like, hey, don't hit your sister. And then child looks back at parent and goes, Whoosh, right? Like, that's going to elicit a certain response from the parent that's going to remind said child of who has the appropriate sovereignty in the house, right? Like, who's in control? That's what disobedience does. Disobedience does it. It elicits this reminder of sovereignty. It, it leads us to discipline. But the question we must ask ourselves is that when God is responding to this disobedience, is he responding out of anger or out of love? What is governing his response? In order to answer this question, I want to read to you an excerpt from Hebrews. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read it to you. I think this is incredibly important for us to understand how we make sense of these storms. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. and chastens everyone he accepts as his son, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. But moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more show, more, more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What an amazing passage. Right, that these storms should be viewed from our perspective not as if God is doing this out of anger and revenge, but out of love, knowing that he wants to draw his children closer to us, that it is in order for us to participate in his holiness, to experience righteousness and peace and love. And so we must endure hardship as discipline. This is the perspective that we need to, to foster when we consider these storms. Now, in order to do this, we need to consider a couple of different angles in which how we understand some of the storms that come our way. And, and this, to me, is, I think, where the, the, the discussion gets a little bit more problematic because we have two different characters at play in this particular story, right? We've got Jonah and we have the sailors. And each are going to experience the storm from a different perspective. Now, Jonah very clearly represents disobedience. I mean, it's plain and simple. We talked about last week. I mean, God said go this way. He ran in the complete opposite direction. All right, so Jonah's in the midst of this storm, and his awareness to it is going to be pretty easy for him to detect the need to respond to the Lord's discipline. Right? And you and I have been there before. Right? We know when we are in the midst of a storm because of our disobedience. Right, we, we've made certain decisions, we've taken certain steps, we've been engaged in certain activities that we know that have created and, and contributed to the storms that we're in. And we're at fault for it. 
And so part of what we have to recognize is that in those moments, God is gonna send somebody to try to wake us up and call us back to himself, right? And so what I would tell you today is that if that's you, let me just be very clear. You continuing to run from God is not gonna make the storm easier. It's it's not gonna just naturally get better with more disobedience. And so if you have been intentionally running from the Lord, let today be your wake-up call. I'd hear the voice of God come in and say, stop running. Come back to me. These storms are designed to bring us into this relationship so that we can participate in his holiness and his righteousness and his peace. So we have to recognize this measure of disobedience that contributes to how we understand the storms. And we have to stop running from the Lord. But I think the more troubling question for us when we begin to think about a God that sends storms is when we think about it from the perspective of the sailors, right? Let me, let me be very clear about this. When we start talking about storms that come in life as a result of disobedience, let me be very clear. Um, I do believe sometimes we find ourselves in situations and storms in life as a result of our disobedience. I do not believe every bad thing that happens to you is a result of disobedience. Okay, so my point is, is that when we start talking about this, I don't want you to assume that, okay, because you lied at work, boom, God's gonna give you cancer. Or because you struggle with gossip and lust, boom, God's gonna make you lose a loved one. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, now there are certain other situations where we give in to greed and lust, and yes, it creates a world of chaos around us. But we need to be careful in how we talk about how these storms are sent to us and the sailors give us this perspective, right? Because here are the sailors, and we're very, it's very clear, this storm was sent for Jonah, right? And we'll see that later based on how these events unfold. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and yet, the sailors are caught up in the midst of it. Here they are in the midst of someone else's disobedience, and they're suffering through the same storm. Now, Let me be clear, it's not to say that the sailors are wholly innocent, right? And we see that in the fact that they were worshiping other gods. And so you and I need to recognize that though there are going to be storms that come in our life that are not a direct result of our actions and our choosing, none of us can stand before God and claim innocence. No one. Okay, But, but we still need to recognize that some of these storms are going to happen because we live in a disobedient world. And other people's actions, or even just the fact that this world is broken, is going to lead us to certain experiences of pain and suffering and hardship that are, or that are no result of our own choosing. So what I'm talking about here, from the sailor's perspective, is, is how do we make sense of someone that's been diagnosed with cancer in childhood? Right? How, how do we understand the fact that the sober driver's life was taken and the one that was intoxicated was spared. How how do we understand parents, spouses, watching their loved ones endure hardship and tragedy when there was nothing that they did to bring it upon themselves? How do we understand an entire race of people being subjected to, to torture and oppression not because they were disobedient, but because of the, the greed and the hatred and the arrogance of others. 
This is the age-old question. How do we understand when bad things happen to good people? How do we make sense of the suffering in our world? Because this is a question that the heart and mind has wrestled with for generation to generation. Right? We look out on this world and we begin to wonder, man, if this if this is the world with, filled with all this suffering, then if there is a God, he isn't good. And if this is his plan, I want no part of it. Right? That's how certain people begin to understand and make sense of suffering. So how do we understand, how do we answer that? How do we begin to make sense of it in these eyes of the sailors? There are several things that I would, I would offer. I'm actually going to paraphrase much of what C.S. Lewis offers in his book, the Problem of Pain, which I highly recommend <clears throat> if you haven't read it before. Works, works really well to help explain some of these things. You have to read it slowly and take Tylenol after every paragraph because it's really hard to understand. But it's really good. <clears throat> here's, what he, what, here's what he offers. First of all, he puts this question in the proper perspective. Right? He says, clearly, if you just look at creation and you look at all the suffering, though, though creation may allure these these curiosities and this sense of awe and wonder, and you might even arrive at a conclusion that there was some form of intelligent design, you can't really look at creation and assume that this, this designer is good. Right? That, that's not really a logical conclusion when you consider the vastness of the universe, the expanse of space and darkness and pain and suffering. And so his question is, well then, how, where does this come from? How do we really understand this problem? And he starts with a certain progression that we see through the course of humanity. One thing that we see within all of, the, of, of human existence is this propensity to believe in something supernatural, right? That it isn't necessarily tied just to creation, but this ability to have a sense of awe for something greater than ourselves, this desire towards worship, this desire to sense the supernatural. That's number one. That is a common human experience that is hard to decipher its origins. Now, complementary to that, is also this understanding of morality, right? That there is some sense of goodness in the world. Now, yes, civilizations have varied in how they've defined goodness through time, and, and there are some discrepancies, but as a whole, we're closer to our understanding of goodness than we are apart, right? And so, so you get this sense of supernatural, you get this sense of morality, but, but those two things aren't necessarily distinct. What really becomes unique is when all of a sudden the two merge to one that there's a sense of a supernatural presence that is leading us towards goodness. And that's fairly unique because there have been many religions that gave us this sense of awe towards the supernatural but did nothing to compel us towards goodness. It still promoted hatred and all sorts of brokenness, right? And yet at the same time, there are all these philosophies of, of morality and truth that did nothing to elicit a response towards the supernatural. So the combination of the two is pretty remarkable and we have the Jews to think of it. Right? God's chosen people were the first to really kind of convey this message that there is a God and he is good. And so we have this distinct origins of this idea of this creator that leads us to a prominent Jew who we know is Jesus. And as C.S. Lewis has famously been quoted, when he describes Jesus, right, Jesus is either a lunatic and a liar or he's exactly who he said he was. And since the records of history don't allow us to affirm the first assertion, we have to accept, accept the second, which means that he is the Son of God. And if that's true, then all the claims of Christianity have to be credible, which tell us that in the midst of this harsh, cruel world, this good God has seen us and is deciding to act favorably towards us. 
That in and of itself is what kind of elicits a greater awareness to this problem of pain. Listen to his quote. He says, to ask whether the universe as we see it looks more like the work of a wise and good creator or the work of chance, indifference, or malevolence is to admit from the outset all the relevant factors in the religious problem. Christianity is not the conclusion of a philosophical debate on the origins of the universe. It is a catastrophic historical event following on the long spiritual preparation of humanity which I've described. It is not a system into which we have to fit the awkward fact of pain. In a sense, it creates rather than solves the problem of pain. For pain would be no problem unless side by side with our daily experience of this painful world we had received what we think a good assurance that ultimate reality is righteous and loving. The whole problem of pain only arises when you and I have some sort of sense that tells us the ultimate reality to which we aspire is actually righteous and loving. Without that awareness, there is no problem of pain. So the issue of these storms, whether they're fair or unfair, create this greater awareness that we are destined ultimately for righteousness and love. And so this doesn't eliminate the case for God. It only presses us further into our need for him. Yes, these storms may not be what we want, but they very much might be what we need. And so it creates this sense that there is this ultimate reality to which we've been called to. Now this then leads us to a very important perspective. Right? This is going to force us to give greater consideration that we are the created and not the creator. And if that's true, then that means our understanding of these words we keep using in terms of fair and love and, and pain, that maybe you and I have a distorted point of view, right? That, that really God, if he is who he says he is and he's trying to bring us into his holiness, his righteousness, his peace, his love, then he has a greater understanding of how to accomplish it than we do because we're the creator. He uses, C.S. Lewis uses this example. Imagine a child sitting down trying to draw a wheel at a young age, right? And as they draw that circle, those lines will be jagged and distorted, but you'll, you'll be able to make out a little bit of what the wheel looks like. But over time, as the child matures, that wheel will get a little bit better and better, more refined, more closely representing what it should look like. This is how you and I begin to understand what love really is, what fair really is. Right now, we know in part and so we can sit down and say, well, I think I know what should be fair. I think I know what should be loving. And we could try to draw it out on a picture, piece of paper. But you know what? It would be distorted. It would be incomplete. And what God is trying to do is draw us into a greater understanding of what love and righteousness and holiness really looks like. And the more we go through it, the better our picture is to draw what that looks like. So yes, we go through storms. And there's this tendency to say, hey, this isn't fair. Leave me alone. I don't want to have to go through this hardship. I don't want to have to endure through this crisis, and I don't want to have to suffer through this distress. But for us to say that is to actually ask for less love, not more. Because if those storms, as we saw through Hebrews 12, are being designed and used to bring us into his discipline, into a greater understanding of who he is, then we need them to better understand the love that he has in store for us. And so we can cry out for him to leave us alone, but that's asking for separation and less of an understanding of love as opposed to more. It's like a child that says, listen, mom, dad, I'm really done with these rules that you've put in this house. I feel like they're unfair. I feel like they're unjust. I feel like that it's, it's creating this distress in me. I want to go my own way. I'm going to play in the street on my own. The parent that agrees to that 
as less loving, not more. And so we need to understand we are created, not the creator. And so his concept of love is much better than our own, and we need to surrender that. The other thing that this forces us to do is get very comfortable with the idea that we are not the center of our story. We're not the center of the universe, right? Um, Man, or God does not exist for the sake of man, right? We exist for his purposes and for his glory. And we have to cozy up with this idea that we are not the ones that get to make this decision. That's really the heart of sin. That's what causes the fall in the garden to begin with, right? That we wanted to be like God. We wanted to decide what was good and evil, what was right and wrong for ourselves. And so when we surrender that reality, it brings us back into a dependency, dependency on God as opposed, opposed to a dependency on ourselves. And what makes this, this message and this talk so difficult is when we begin to talk about that idea that we are the created and not the creator and we're not the center, we're not the hero of these stories, it reminds us of the problem of sin. As we said earlier, no one in this story can claim innocence. Everyone has suffered from some form of disobedience at some point or in some capacity. And so it takes us back to this problem of sin. Now, through the course of human history, for a good chunk of it, you didn't really have to convince people of that. Right? There was a long time where civilizations understood that they were possibly going to receive some form of divine punishment, and they walked around in fear. But somewhere along the way in recent history, that mentality has changed. And you and I live in a culture now, we live in a concept now where people just assume all these things should be given to us, that we should just be guaranteed all these different things, that it's a right for us to have this favor and this preference, And so the hard thing on many respects for us today is that before we can even preach the good news, we have to remind people of the bad. Before we can even tell them that they need a cure, we have to remind ourselves that we are sick. See, the reality is all of us are in some form of distress. Some of us here this morning, we're in distress because of our own choosing and our own disobedience. Others of us, we've been caught up in this broken world And it seems unfair, but all of us, all of us are in some form, in some need of rescue. Where we all have to cling to the one prayer that all of us need to cry and never surrender is our need for mercy. That prayer should never be far from our hearts and our minds. We should always cry out, God, take notice of us. See us that we may not perish. This is our call. This is our cry. Let me close with this. Let me offer just a word of instruction. This is not a message that I give you those nice little three points of application. This is a a message that hopefully influences our posture and our understanding of how is it that we make sense of hard, tragic times. And what I would tell you is, is a paraphrase of what we see in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that when you face storms, right, when you go through these trials, no matter what has caused them that we do not go along preaching ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have this hope. We have this light that is the light of all mankind, and this light has shined in the darkness, and it has given us an assurance of this mercy that we will be able to cling to these ancient promises, knowing that he will bring us home, 
that our God will never leave us or forsake us, but he will draw us unto himself so that we can be with him forever. That's the assurance that we have from Christ. And it is a sacred treasure, one that we should hold close, one that we should keep in these fragile vessels as if we were these jars of clay. And so, yes, you and I, we will be hard-pressed on every side, but we won't be crushed. We will be perplexed, but not in despair. We will be persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Though outwardly, we may be wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day because our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, let us fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. Let us not fixate on these storms because let me guarantee you that no matter how severe, no matter how hard, and no matter how long you may have to endure it, it is momentary, it is temporary. Your destination, your hope is eternal glory with Jesus Christ our Lord. So may we always cling to that hope and the realization of the mercy that he has given us. Let us always pray consistently, no matter what season, no matter what circumstance, in what situation, Lord, see us. Take notice of us. And we will not be those that fixate on the tragedy, but on the beautiful rescue he provides. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess our need for you once again. And we are grateful that you give us this Savior who's comes and rescues us from all storms. And I know that there are many of us in here today whose, whose lives and hearts are filled with the heaviness of those burdens. And so, Father, let us not run past that too quickly, but may we just truly come to your feet and cry for mercy. Father, let us cling to these promises, knowing that once again, you will bring us home. We thank you for this cross. We thank you for this hope. May we build our lives upon it, both today and forevermore. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to dismiss a little differently today for this time of invitation. Um, obviously, we, we like to make it a, a practice that if there's a public decision you want to make, you want to join the church, or if you've never really put your trust in Christ as Savior, you can come forward and do that publicly. Um, we're going to ask everyone to remain seating, seated during this time of invitation. So you can come forward, but uh, if you have a decision you want to make, but we also want to really stress the importance of just finding time to pray. Um, and you know, it was a hard week, to be honest. I know a lot of folks in our church just encountered some storms and, and a lot of things that were, were difficult to manage and are difficult to manage. And so we want you to know that, that you can be prayed for. And so if you need to come forward just for prayer for some of that stuff, you need to come to the altar, you can come to the altar and pray. If that's uncomfortable, that's fine. You can stay in your seats. But we're going to sing this song of you that, that Matt wrote, and it, and it helps remind us of the beauty of clinging to these promises in the midst of these storms. And so I'd ask you that wherever the Lord leads you, if you need to come forward with a decision, you can. But would you just stay seated and just close your eyes and and be reminded of his mercy. Be reminded of the way in which he promises to rescue. And if you're in that midst of disobedience, then this is the time to repent and come running back to him.
If you're in those seasons where you're just caught up in a storm that feels like you're the innocent bystander and you just need help and rescue, then, then cry out for his help. Cry out for his mercy. And it's been some time in the presence of our God. salvation in my darkest night hear my supplication listen to my cry will you hasten to me will you not delay for my soul is weak Cast down from the dead, yet I will remember promises of old. God, that is our prayer. May your promises be our comfort through every storm as you bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.
Amen. So a couple of things. I would like to invite the choir to come forward. Uh, we're going to have a, a benediction that is sung over you today, which is kind of exciting and fun. So they're going to make their way forward um, and take their places behind me. And as they do that, I would like to uh, offer one announcement of a decision that was made that is worth celebrating today. I'd like to invite Steve and Mel- Melina Monroe to come forward along with their granddaughter Eve. I know Katie is here. If, if y'all are aware of the Frigé family, we've been blessed by Eve and her sister Lissy and Katie, there's Katie, and DL, and so uh, we have Steve and Melina that are joining the church today, and we have been so blessed by this family and so grateful to have you guys make that decision publicly today. And so uh, as we always like to celebrate in a decision like this is to affirm that not only will they be able to bless our church as we know that they will with their passions and their callings, but that our church would be a blessing to them. And so if you would covenant to be the church that they need during this season of their life, would you let them know that you agree to do so by saying amen? Amen. And at the conclusion of the service, after we have this benediction sung over us, I would invite you to come and meet them and shake their hands. Uh, Since we're doing it a little bit differently, I'm going to ask for you all just to go ahead and stay seated, and we'll allow the the choir here to, to dismiss us. Now, what we'll do is that once they're done singing, that's your... That's your cue. You can, you're free, okay? Um, but this is a great way to, to end the service. And so I'm going to ask that you would stand. And, and part of what we're going to have sung over us here is a reminder of the promise that we have, right? That the Lord does see us, that his face shines upon, us, shines upon us, and he will keep us in his care. And so let's have this benediction sung over us. <laughs>